And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over. Once we heard about the retarding basin, my team at Casefile was committed to doing whatever we could to facilitate a search. But with Melbourne going in and out of lockdown, this proved harder than it first seemed. Even so, Steve's story about finding Sarah McDermott's bag was worth investigating. Sometimes, the gap between telling true crime stories moves from theoretical to the practical, and it's time to roll up your sleeves. We moved forward with this, knowing that the police knew about the site because Steve had gone there with two detectives, but they hadn't explored the area further. Sometimes, when you get information like this, you just have to take a leap of faith. If you find nothing, at least you looked. Here, Vicky Petratus explains what happened when we finally got to explore the retarding basin. Pandemic lockdown aside, it took many months to coordinate a meeting at the Retarding Basin between Steve, Peter and Sheila McDermott, and my friend Jane with her metal detector. The reason for the delay was because when lockdown finished at the end of October 2020, a summer of unseasonal rain meant the Retarding Basin was full. I had been down to take a look In fact, the Cannanook Railway Station and the Retarding Basin were my first excursion out once lockdown finished. For months I had been studying satellite maps of the area, and my friend Kate from the Frankston community page on Facebook had even sent a drone up to take some aerial shots. Kate felt a connection to the McDermott's. Her mum had worked with Sheila many years earlier. Luckily, while I was locked down and forbidden to travel more than five kilometres from where I lived, the Cannanook Railway Station was within Kate's five kilometres, so she offered to be my eyes in the investigation. She filmed the walk up the station ramp so I could see the distance from the overpass to the car park. On the morning of our meeting at the retarding basin, I felt nervous. What if we found something? Had I done the right thing by asking Peter and Sheila McDermott to be there? How would we all feel if the metal detector went off? How would we feel if it didn't? Peter and Sheila were in the car park in Miles Grove when we arrived. They were early, like us. Even though we spoke regularly on the phone, I hadn't seen them since the beginning of the long Melbourne lockdown. It was good to see them again. Steve arrived and, after a lot of talking on the phone, I got to meet him in person for the first time. 
I had played his interview to Peter and Sheila, and he again told his story to them in person, this time standing in the area where he found the bag. Armed with two metal detectors, Jane watched as Steve pointed out the route he'd taken all those years ago, from across the railway lines into the retarding basin and then over to the other side. He also pointed out how much the area had changed with the recent works. Jane could see it too. There's been landscaping and a whole new area there, basically. It's pretty easy to tell that all those new drain pipes are all brand new, so they've obviously done land works as well to change the levels, I'm guessing. The machine that I use is um, an SCD2300. That's primarily for gold detecting. So I use my other coin and relic hunter. The, the difference with one's a much better machine, much more sensitive, but the other machine, you can actually turn off rust. So the only things that you're looking for are non-rusting metal, non-ferrous metal. So basically I use the other machine so I could turn off the junk. And then when I thought I had a bit of an area where I'd seen some targets, then I used my more sensitive machine to make sure there was nothing else there. Metal detecting is all about methodically sweeping the area. When Jane fired up the machines, she began searching. We all watched. Steve, who had located the bag years earlier, mapped out an area of where he thought he had located it and then possibly just if he just uh, discarded it locally we mapped out a bigger grid area so I just marked as far as I thought was practical and that was our search area which was really just adjacent to where the car access would have been to the retarding basin just marked out a square and then just systematically I just did a grid search up and back, and then I went in the opposite direction. Jane had warned us that the machine would pick up a lot of junk, scraps of metal, bottle tops, and that sort of thing. So we braced ourselves for a lot of beeping, but surprisingly, there was very little, and that in itself would be telling. The lack of targets and the lack of rubbish in a retarding basin was actually what was the strange thing. You would expect a hell of a lot of tin can type rubbish, aluminium cans, anything like that that comes down stormwater areas and then anything like that that would just get thrown in because the surrounding area had a lot of rubbish heaps and you would just think people, as human nature is, you toss things into water but there was hardly any targets and, and really hardly any rubbish. So, uh, to me, looking at the surface where we did dig, it was very sandy and very, very well drained, which was different to the way that Steve had described it many years ago. When he'd found the bag, he said it was actually wedged in mud and it had tripped him over because it was that well wedged in mud and there was none of that. This probably had a good 15 to 20 centimetres of really loose sand and then underneath that was very compacted soil. So without being there at the time, I think that the whole area has been landscaped. I think it's been dug deeper and then I think the sand's been put on it as an after fact. And then there's there's brand new drains as well. 
and there's like a bridging system and new dugout drains that, to me, only look a few years old. So I think that whole area is not as it was five, ten and more years ago. As I watched Jane dig up the soft, sandy soil every time the machine did beep, I kept thinking, this isn't the mud that Steve described finding the bag in. I could see that Jane was puzzled by the lack of hits and everything about the area suggested it had been resurfaced. I just think that the area is not as what it was back then. So if something was buried deep, I would have still found it in that sub-mud area for sure, but it just depends. No one knows how much of the initial mud's actually been taken away from that area for the sand to be then put down on top. So it's just so hard to say. I can't rule out that the bag wasn't there and then moved or isn't perhaps somewhere else in that whole retarding area just with land moving and bulldozers and whatever else they use. They might have scooped and dumped. As best we could find, there was no targets that seemed to relate to the bag, the tennis racket, any of the known items that we were looking for. Afterwards, Jane and Steve and I had lunch with the McDermott's. Rather than a sense of disappointment that we didn't find anything, Peter and Sheila were so grateful that we had looked. Because to them, no stone must be left unturned in the search for their daughter. As making the podcast drew to a close, I decided to take up the police offer to interview a detective from the cold case squad. There was one question I really wanted to ask. It was about a moment during the interview between Jodie Jones and Charlie Bazina and Cole Clark on the 23rd of July 1990, just 12 days after Sarah had disappeared. In question 427, Charlie asked Jodie about going to Margaret's house in Elizabeth Street, Mentone, on Wednesday the 11th of July. Did she notice anything in the street as she got to Margaret's house? Yes, Jodie said. She had walked past a police car, a divvy van. What was it doing there? Jodie thought the two male cops she walked past were attending a domestic. How did she know it was a domestic? Because she could hear a bloke yelling something about why he had hit her. Jodie assumed he was talking about a partner. Since Margaret's statement put Jodie at her place in Elizabeth Street on the night of Wednesday the 11th of July 1990, if Jodie said she saw police in the street that evening on her way there, this was corroboration she was in Mentone, not at the Cannonock station on the night Sarah was taken. When Margaret was questioned again on the 16th of August, after Jodie's interview, here's what she said. When Jodie came to my place on the Wednesday, she did mention to me that there were police in my street, but I didn't see them. And then I noticed something interesting. Jodie said she walked past the police twice because she knew Margaret's address, but she couldn't find the house number. Coincidentally, I had just written about a shooting in Elizabeth Street for another story and wondered how far the house I wrote about 
was from Margaret's. When I looked at the map, even though the numbers were close, the houses weren't near each other. Elizabeth Street has a strange numbering system. Normally say, if you're in number one, then you should be next to number three and across the road from number two. But Elizabeth Street doesn't work like that. The number across the road seems to have no relationship to the one opposite. When I read the transcript of Jodie saying she walked up and down the street twice looking for the house, I could see why. On the 28th of April, I approached police media and began the lengthy process of applying to interview a serving member of Victoria Police. Several weeks into the process, I wondered if it would ever end. The podcast was done and I just wanted an answer to my police in Elizabeth Street question and maybe a general update about where the case was at. I put my questions in writing and sent them off, at the same time wondering if the media had to do this every time they interviewed a police officer. I was told that the police would need to review the podcast and be given 21 days to approve of it. I didn't like the prospect of handing over my entire series for their approval. All along, I had played episodes to Peter and Sheila McDermott as I made them. Their approval was the only approval I sought. I told police media that the series was nine episodes long, and then they said they would just need to approve the episode where their officer spoke. Fair enough, I guess. Then they wanted to know which retired police I intended interviewing. Again, the podcast was finished. The interviews were done. I couldn't see why that was relevant, but I told them anyway, because it was never my intention to be clandestine about this. Finally, weeks later, I asked if maybe they could just give me a written answer to my question. A month after the back and forth of applying, here's what I got. There is no record of Jodie Jones walking past police. However, it's entirely feasible slash understandable that as the police in question were responding to a job, they may not have seen her. But of course, my question wasn't whether they saw her or not. It was whether the police were there. Every two-up patrol has a cop who drives and a cop who does the running sheet. I know this because in the olden days, when police were happy to accommodate rioters, I went on patrol enough times to see this happen. These running sheets provide an exact record of every job the crew attend and the time of each job. If Jodie was interviewed 12 days after Sarah was taken, I imagine running sheets for cops in the Mentone area would have been checked to prove or disprove her alibi. Jodie said she got to Mentone around 6 or 6.30. I sent a transcript of the questions between Jodie and the detectives to police media and then got this reply. Hi Vicky, I can confirm that there is a record of police attending an incident in Elizabeth Street Mentone that night and that they cleared at around 6pm. 
I sent a one-word reply to police media. Wow. Jodie Jones said she saw cops in Elizabeth Street on Wednesday the 11th of July 1990 on her way to stay with Margaret. And they were there. <laughs> 